Attention, all troops. He's alive. Alive. Welcome to the Rapnolis. For those of you who grew up in the 80s. This sound might be familiar. It's the sound of a frustrated person trying to solve the Rubik's Cube and not doing a great job. More about that later. When I was a kid, I got my first Rubik's Cube in the early 1980s. It was a gift from my mother, and I was obsessed with it. I walked around the house with no ability to solve the thing. I would just spin it, trying and hoping, I guess, that at some point it would just solve itself. And I think I was able to get one side solved, and that was a big deal for me, but I didn't understand what was needed to get to the next step. Now, my grandmother loved to do puzzles. She would do crossword puzzles, jumbles, especially a lot of word stuff, and she enjoyed watching me try to do this and actually try to give me an incentive to solve it. She said, if you can ever solve that, I will give you $20. $20 was a huge amount of money, to me in those days. That's a lot of ice cream. So I was determined to try to solve this thing and went to the bookstore and tried to memorize what I saw in some book about how to solve it. That didn't even go so well. I was able to solve what would be the first layer at that point, but beyond that, it seemed impossible. Then I thought of an idea. She did not specify how to solve it, and perhaps I could get away with something. Perhaps I could take it apart and put it back together. To do that, all you have to do is kind of turn it a little quarter turn and then pop a piece out. And then you pop all the pieces out and put it back together correctly. Everything worked according to plan. I turned it, popped it. Then when I'm putting it together, I'm almost done and there's a piece missing. I don't know where it could be. Now, as I might have mentioned in past shows, my family owned dogs. And they were dogs that ate just about anything. And as I guess you guessed it, one of the dogs took the Rubik's piece. I didn't figure that out. I thought I just lost it. And even though I dug under my bed, I looked under everything I could find, I couldn't find it. Then one day my sister comes to me and says, Are you missing a piece to the Rubik's Cube? Well, it turns out the dog had chewed some of it, but not all of it. And my sister had spotted pieces of Rubik's Cube while walking the dog. Not my finest moment, and I was left with a broken Rubik's Cube at that point, and wouldn't get another one for another year. And I would keep the old one in the toy chest in my room for years afterwards, and it would fall apart, and there would be pieces on the bottom of it. And I would still not be able to solve the new Rubik's Cube I have. That is, of course, until very recently, and we'll talk about that a little later. On today's show, we're going to talk about the Rubik's Cube, one of my favorite childhood toys and one of my favorite adult toys. I always have one handy. We're going to talk about the person who created it. We'll talk about how to solve it, how it was released to America, some of the competitions involved in solving it, how I eventually learned to solve it. We'll talk about the Rubik's Cube video game for the Atari 2600, and of course, everyone's favorite cartoon, Rubik the Amazing Cube. We have an info-packed episode ahead of us, so without further ado, let's start the show. Thank you. 
So a little bit about the cube. The Rubik's Cube is a 3D puzzle invented in 1974 by Hungarian sculptor and Professor Erno Rubik. Originally it was called the Magic Cube. In the classic cube, also referred to as a 3x3, each of the six sides of the cube are given a color. Traditionally they are green, orange, blue, red, white, and yellow, and what covers each little block is a sticker. And there's a pivot mechanism that enables each face to turn independently. Just about the only piece that doesn't turn is the centerpiece of each side. If you want to solve the Rubik's Cube, each side must be brought back to its color with all the white pieces being on the white side, all the orange pieces being on the orange side, and so on and so forth. When you get your Rubik's Cube, it is perfectly matched, and then you make a couple of turns, and then you are hopelessly lost for decades. A little bit about the creator of the Rubik's Cube, Erno Rubik, which I found out in the native form of Hungarian is actually Rubik Erno. They say it the other way, so I kind of like that Rubik is what you lead with back there. He was born in Budapest, Hungary in 1944 during World War II. His father was a flight engineer and his mother was a poet. He would go on to graduate from Technical University and had postgraduate studies in sculpting and interior architecture. From 1971 to 1975, he worked as an architect and then would become a professor at Budapest College for the Applied Arts. Now, Rubik would go on to invent this Rubik's Cube, or as he called it, the Magic Cube at the time, but he wasn't the first one to apply for patents, and there's been a lot of debate about the invention of the Puzzle Cube. In 1970, Larry Nichols invented a 2 by 2 by 2 cube with puzzle pieces that could rotate. He filed a Canadian patent application for it that very year. His cube was held together with magnets. Not sure how well that would work. And he was granted a U.S. patent in 1972, two years before Rubik would invent his cube. That same year in 1970 when Nichols invented his cube, Frank Fox in Britain patented a spherical 3x3x3 puzzle device and was granted a patent in 1974. Erno Rubik, while studying interior design, came up with the cube himself while trying to illustrate how to solve structural problems of moving parts independently without an entire mechanism falling apart. Now, he didn't realize at the time that he was inventing a cube. He just invented this thing that you could spin and turn, and every part moved independently. It was kind of cool. But then he spun it, and realized, wow, I'm going to have to put this back into order. How do I do that? And I think it took him about a month to figure out that it could be solved. And once he did, he obtained a patent for what he called a magic cube in 1975 in Hungary. The Hungarian patent number is HU170062. Since the puzzle had not been patented internationally within a year of its original patent, it was prevented from getting a patent according to international patent law. And now, this message. Sure, Sir Isaac Newton unraveled the mysteries of gravity, but could he have unraveled the mysteries of Rubik's Cube? Three weeks ago, Judge Smith retired to her chambers with Exhibit A, Rubik's Cube. She hasn't been seen since. Warning, once you get your hands on Rubik's Cube, you may never be able to put it down. Rubik's Cube. Over three billion combinations, but just one solution from Ideal. Eastern Europe. 
the studio of a famous puzzle inventor. So they want the puzzle that's harder than the original Rubik's Cube. <laughs> well, here's one they'll call Rubik's Revenge. <laughs> this revenge is a masterpiece. Just being able to solve one side will be a real challenge. Two sides are almost impossible. <laughs> and all six will be the ultimate revenge. <laughs> Rubik's Revenge. Sent to you with love. A little about the cube before we talk about its premiere. The standard Rubik's Cube is approximately two and a quarter inches on each side, and the 26 individual miniature cubes are sometimes referred to as cubies or cubelets. If you take it apart, you will see that each of these include a concealed inward extension that allows it to grab on to the other cubes while at the same time permitting it to move around in different ways. The center face on each side, which actually is the base color for that side, is anchored and does not move. So if you're looking at the white center piece, that is the white side of the cube, and that will help you when you're trying to solve the Rubik's Cube in the long run. The first few Rubik's Cubes were produced and sold in Budapest toy shops in late 1977. In late 1979, Ideal Toys, who had seen the Magic Cube, decided to sign a deal with Rubik and take the cube worldwide. The puzzle would make its international debut at toy fairs in Paris, Nuremberg, London, and New York in early 1980. Now there was a couple of problems. They couldn't use the term Magic Cube. A couple of names were thrown around, including the Gordian Knot and Inca Gold. Those were rejected until some genius thought, well, the guy's name is Rubik. Why don't we name it after him? Nobody uses the word Rubik for anything. Thus, the Rubik's Cube was born. An interesting fact, I don't think a lot of people in the U.S. are too familiar with Hungary or Hungarian stars. And when they were thinking of who to have at the toy premiere, I guess the only obvious person to come up would be one of the Gabor sisters, who are probably the most famous Hungarians in America in the last century. So they had Zsa Gabor, who many considered the height of celebrity, introduced the new Rubik's Cube. If you're not familiar with Zsa she made lots of guest appearances to TVs and movies. She's also the sister of Ava Gabor, who you might be more familiar with if you watched Green Acres. Initially, there were a shortage of cubes, and if you were in stores at the time trying to find one, you will note that lots and lots of imitations of the Rubik's Cube appeared. Engage more understanding of basic math. Now, I'm not a mathematician, so there is some math behind the cube that hurts my brain when I think about it, but I've been trying to figure it out. Some of the numbers that jump out at me are right on the box. It says that there are a billion possible positions for the cube. Billions is an awful lot for something so small, and it takes into account only what you can get by turning the cube. From what I understand, if you disassemble the cube and rearrange it in a way that it's not meant to be arranged, you could actually increase the number of possible positions in the cube by a factor of 12. Disengage more understanding of basic math. So up until very recently, I'm talking just a couple of weeks ago, I had not solved the Rubik's Cube. I have tried many times, bought some books, watched some videos, 
I just couldn't commit to the solution. I've come very close many times, and it was a glorious moment when it finally happened. And I will tell you whose videos I watched to get this done, and I would suggest that you do it. But I just wanted to tell you a little bit about some of the solving, or at least the one I do. In the cubing world, you have to memorize a sequence of moves that have a desired effect. So say you have a green piece on the bottom that you want to move to the top you will memorize a couple of moves to move that piece to exactly where you want it to move. And that set of moves is called an algorithm. And those algorithms are based on the sides of the cube and what direction you're turning it. And as you get more into this and learn these algorithms, they become very familiar. And you will always be holding the cube in a certain way and spinning it to get it to the way you want it to go. If you are interested in learning to solve the way I learned to solve it, I would suggest you check out a cube solver named Dan Brown, who has a set of videos on YouTube. He's been putting videos on the internet since 2007 and is very good at solving the Rubik's Cube. You can find his videos at youtube.com slash pogobat. Dan is my Rubik guru, so I can only thank him for finally setting me free and allowing me to put perfectly formed cubes on my desk with the sides all aligned. It is a magical thing, and I am very happy to have found his videos and to actually have sat through and followed them. They're worth it, so take your time. If you really want to learn to solve it, you will be rewarded in the end. Oh, and also take notes. It helps. Once you've learned to solve it, you will probably be very frustrated when you mess up, but you might also be really awesome at it, in which case you will want to be entering all the speed cubing competitions. That's right, you've probably seen them in the human interest section of your local news. There are speed cubing competitions. The first world championship was organized by the Guinness Book of World Records and was held in Munich on March 13, 1981. There were rules, cubes would be scrambled 40 times, lubricated, and then people would go. The first official winner was Juri Froschel, who had a record of 38 seconds. Froschel was born in Munich. The first world championships would be held a year later in June in Budapest and would be won by Min Tai, a student from Los Angeles who had a super fast time of 22.95 seconds. And while that sounds fast, people have gotten a lot faster. Since 2003, in these competitions, the winner is determined by taking the average time of the middle three of five attempts. That being said, they also take the single best time so that could be recorded as well. And if you are interested in learning more about the history of these world records, you can check out the World Cube Association. There are different types of solvings that certain cubing events allow for. There's the blindfolded solving, a team blindfolded where you are blindfolded and another person is telling you what to do, underwater solving, single hand solving, and of course, everyone's favorite, solving the cube with your feet. Of those different ones, the World Cube Association, or WCA, only recognizes the blindfolded, one-handed, and feet-solving as official competition events. The current world record for single time on a 3x3x3 was set by Felix Zemdegs, who had a time of 5.66 seconds at the Melbourne Winter Open in 2011. The world record for average time is also held by Zemdegs, and that was set at 7.64 seconds. It takes me 10 to 20 minutes to solve a cube at this point, 
it is going to take me about four or five hundred years to get down to under a minute. So I don't think I'll be entering any cube competitions in the near future. And now, these messages. There's never been a puzzle quite like Rubik's Cube, and America may never be the same. The Medical Journal has written about a unique phenomenon, Rubik's Thumb. A museum recognized it as a work of art. Rubik's Cube has been involved in divorce proceedings. People are practicing at clinics, entering contests, and competing across the country. Rubik's Cube from Ideal. 25 million Americans have made it a part of their lives. How about you? Rubik, you've done it again! I'm gonna get you, Rubik! It's Rubik's Magic Puzzle, the new challenge from the incredible Erno Rubik. The cube was easy. I dare you to link the rings. I did it! You didn't do it right. Rubik's Magic, pick it up, you'll never put it down. Oh, I can't put it down. <laughs> I can't put it down. Can you, eh? Rubik's Magic Puzzle, new from Matchbox. You'll never put it down. <laughs> Give me that back. It's my turn now. I mentioned that when the cube came out, there were lots of rip-offs. There would also be non-rip-offs. Other solving pieces that Rubik would make, you would have the different size cubes, the 2x2x2, two by two by two, or the mini, the standard 3x3, three three, the Rubik's Revenge, the 4x4x4, four by four by four, the Professor Cube, which is the 5x5x5. Five by five by five. There would also be 6x6x6, 7x7x7, and some crazy people on the internet are making ones that are even bigger, and just watching them try to slide them gives me a headache. Rubik has also made the Rubik Pyramid, the Rubik Snake, the Rubik Rings. Recently they made a Rubik that was a touchscreen Rubik that you moved things around by touchscreen, very high-tech in electronics. What's great about the Rubik scene is that it's constantly evolving. In addition to the cubes themselves, there's new software coming out to help solve Rubik's cubes, and of course, ones that allow you to emulate solving a Rubik's cube. One of the first games to kind of take the Rubik concept would be the game Rubik's Cube for the Atari 2600. It was originally only available to readers of the Atari Age magazine through the Atari Club, but later would appear in stores. The game is not actually you solving a 3D cube. It's a little different. You're actually just kind of moving colors around. It's still a lot of fun to play. I don't know if Atari didn't get the rights to Rubik's Cube or if they fell through, but the game would later be renamed to the Atari Video Cube, making copies that are labeled Rubik's Cube kind of rare. Does this sound familiar? Hello, my name is Rubik. That is the music to Rubik the Amazing Cube, a television show that ran from 1983 to 1984. That music was composed by Dean Elliott. Elliott was a great cartoon composer, worked on Mr. Magoo in the 50s, but would later team up with Chuck Jones and scored much of the music for the Tom and Jerry cartoons between 1965 and 1967. We had a record of Elliot's when I was growing up called Zounds What Sounds. It is an interesting 
album that I think has a cult following. I haven't dug up the LP. I have a box of the records from my youth and haven't really dug any of them out, but I remember listening to it a whole lot. Really enjoyed it. A little bit about Rubik the Amazing Cube. It was a Saturday morning cartoon, only lasted one season, 12 episodes, and was made by Ruby Spears Production. It was broadcast as part of the Pac-Man Rubik the Amazing Cube hour block on ABC. In the show, Rubik was this magical cube with special powers, and those powers were only available when he was fully solved. This made for lots of fun moments as Rubik would fall down and get all scrambled, and the kids who were partnered with him would need him and would rush to solve them, and they would beat any speed cubing competition record because all of them could solve it. They were so good at it that even the animals around them would eventually learn to solve the cube. It was utter insanity, but it was beautiful and magical to me as a kid, as a fan of the cube and a fan of the show. The backstory of Rubik is pretty similar to, I guess, kind of Frosty the Snowman. He'd fallen out of the stagecoach of an evil magician who wants him back, of course, and he becomes the main villain of the series, much like in Frosty with the magic hat, and he needs to pursue it. The show had the distinction of being the first Saturday morning cartoon show to feature Latino children as the main characters, and those characters were Reynaldo, who was played by Michael Bell. Bell has done a ton of cartoon characters from that era, and recently, if you've played a video game, you've probably heard his voice. He's quite prolific, but if you watched cartoons in the 70s and 80s, you might recognize him as the voice of Lazy, Grouchy, and Handy Smurf on the Smurfs. He was a bunch of voices on the Transformers, including Swoop, Prowl, Sideswipe, and First Aid, and if you were a Super Friends fan, he was the Riddler and Zan of the Wonder Twins. Marla was voiced by Angela Moya. She doesn't have a huge resume, worked on Cagney and Lacey, and in the 80s version of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. She also had a small role in the 1987 movie Born in East L.A. Lisa was voiced by Jennifer Fajardo. The only other credit I could find for Lisa was as Polynesian Girl in the Walter Matthau, Jack Lemmon movie Buddy Buddy. Carlos was voiced by Michael Saucedo probably best known for his role as Juan Santiago on the soap opera General Hospital. Rubik himself was voiced by a very familiar TV actor, Ron Palillo, who played Horshack on Welcome Back, Cotter. And if he doesn't sound that familiar, it is because his voice was modified to make it sound like it was. The show was directed by John Kimball, Rudy LaRiva, and Norm McCabe. And if Norm McCabe's name sounds familiar, he was a former Warner Brothers director who did some great stuff back in the golden age of Warner Brothers animation. I am very happy to tell you that I have solved the Rubik's Cube. It was a great moment and one that kind of changed how I deal with the cube. I've really taken to carrying it around with me much more often and trying to figure it out. It no longer just sits on my desk or around the house. Instead, it comes with me in the car and... If you see someone sitting in a parking lot trying to get that last side, that probably is me. Just look for me with the pages of notes. I picture myself retiring one day into a castle made of Rubik's Cubes from floor to ceiling, all solved by me. Or perhaps there'll be those touch ones, and I can just merely brush my fingertips against them, and they will all come alive and dance. Dance for me, cubes. Sometimes it's the simplest things that can give you the most joy. For me, it is a complicated yet simple thing that has driven me for many years. And I thank you, Erno Rubik, 
And I thank you, Dan Brown, for helping me to get this solved, and I encourage you all to do the same. You can enjoy a Rubik's Cube, but you really can't fully appreciate it until you've solved it. It is a whole other level of happiness. Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, you can drop by the website at www.retroist.com. You can follow me on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at facebook.com slash retroist and twitter.com slash retroist. The music you hear in the show is by Peachy. If you have musical needs, you can email Peachy at peachy at retroist.com. Thanks for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend. So this is how you finish up the cube. You just a simple terms here. Two, uh, one, oh. Really need to keep my notes in front of me. This has been a retroist production. Goodbye.